0: But yeah, hey everyone, uh, back again today. We're talking about Gilles Deleuze's Cinema Two: The Time Image. So, I'm joined uh, by with I'm joined. <laughs> oh, you want Christina me to want me is to jo- No, no. But uh, Christina is joining me once again to talk about this or the sequel to Cinema One: The Movement Image. And thank God, because I don't understand. I didn't understand a word of this. Uh, but we'll get into that as we move through this. Uh, a couple things to say you can find me on instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want to look at pictures of my cats uh you can support me and be among the few other people to support this on patreon or um you can find this in podcast form on anywhere pretty much where you get podcasts or if you're listening to this in podcast form you can find this on youtube if for whatever reason you want to do that uh there are no ads on podcasts and i hope to keep it that way um so i don't know why you go from there to youtube but anyways it's there uh and christina what do you do
1: uh oh god um i'm a phd candidate at the center for the study of theory and criticism i uh write screenplays i write essays on medium i do a lot of things uh i am the one person on Earth who maybe understands this book cover to cover—I uh, believe it. I, as I jokingly said earlier, I feel like the uh, ideal audience for this book is limited to pretty much one person. And you're looking at her, them. Um, yeah, if you are interested in what I have to say and want to hear more of it, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Thought and Cinema. T H O T and Cinema. And, uh, on Instagram at cello Burke, it's private right now, but you can send me a follow request. I'll probably be okay with it. And yeah, so I'll, I'm here I'll, to talk about cinema too. I'm super excited. I'll
0: put links and handles for that in the description for anyone that's wants to easily, um, access that. Uh, but yeah, cinema 2. How do we, how do, I, I wish I could have prepared better, but I was just so lost. So
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no preparing for this book. I, I guess before I say anything, I want to say that like rereading this has been uh, such a tremendously fun experience for me. I, I love this book if it's possible to have a favorite theory book or a favorite non-fiction book or like i can't say it's my favorite book because william faulkner's light in august exists but it's like up there it's one of my favorite things in the world i like faulkner i've never read that one though yeah i i really that's probably my favorite novel but this is like maybe my favorite book yeah i don't uh i don't know how else to put it i love this thing reading it I like see so much of myself in it in so many different ways and it's always been like the book I go back to the way I understand things like I'm not really a Deleuze scholar I know a thing or two or uh, two or three things about Deleuze but like this book I know and I like I just feel like it captures so much about what I find meaningful about cinema, even though it does it through these mediations, through philosophy, through mathematics, through contemporary science, through literature. Like this book has everything in it. And it also speaks to a certain kind of film viewer that um, really could have only existed at the point of time Deleuze was writing. And it's a perspective I've tried to recreate so much in my own life. So, like, when I say I'm the perfect audience for this book, it's like, yes, I'm into cinema and philosophy. But I'm into post-structuralist philosophy. And I'm into French cinema, not just of the new wave, but post-new wave. Like, I know who Philippe Garrel and Jacques Doyen are. I have no like, idea. <laughs> I can talk about the Zanzibar group and, like, where Gorel's work comes from and why Deleuze cites him. Like, I know... I know all these references. I know the difference between Straub and Marguerite Dura and Hans-Jürgen Sieberberg. Like, I know all that stuff, too. And then this time reading it, I really felt like this book was for me when later on he'll talk about problems and theorems. And... My one of my good friends wrote an essay and then eventually included in his master's thesis an extended meditation on Deleuze's ideas of problems and theorems so because of him I understand more of this book than I think I would have initially so really I'm picking up on everything in here and responding to it so that's why like I have a personal closeness with this book it does everything I'm interested in almost like if Deleuze could have snuck from some trans feminism in here, like I would just be this book, I wouldn't be a person, like <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and how has it
1: then if you if you want to talk about it, how has it um spoken to you in terms of your own transition um I think the thing that really gets me about this book is something that has been in my work the whole time, which is this question of indiscernibility, mm-hmm um and we'll talk about this in detail when we get to the chapter on crystal images. <laughs> I, which
0: I will say right now is by far the idea of the crystal is by far the thing that confuses me the most but
1: yeah well, that's that's the thing is like i i almost identify with the crystal in some way in this constant movement between real and imaginary between virtual and actual. Mm-hmm. That's where i find so much of myself and it's a very aesthetic way of thinking about transition and that's maybe one thing i'll say is why why maybe i'm not the right person to write a trans philosophy is because i'm so concerned with the aesthetic side of things and that's the way i see myself through it whereas there's a lived element and a quotidian element to being a trans person that i don't see and that i don't feel i see um And a true trans philosophy would manage to mitigate both. Whereas for me, I just always wants to focus on the aesthetic part, the creative part. And when we talk about how Deleuze uses creativity later on, like, I just so identify with that 100%. Like, creativity is the fundamental mode of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I I got that much out of this, but definitely
0: there are more movements in it that I'm not privy to at this moment. Um, but I will say, if if you've listened so this far, uh, and you're curious as to what the hell is going on, we also did a talk on the first book uh, on this channel, so you can check that out if you want, because I didn't mention that earlier, but you can find that on here if you want a little bit more background. Um, but yeah, what is, what is that? Push us into the preface, more or less? <laughs> yeah, the, the preface to
1: the English edition. Um, I So... Yeah, we're going to talk about time images, and I think the first thing that's going to be a stumbling block to anyone with this work, and was a stumbling block to many of DeLiz's peers, and I'm sure to North American scholars who encountered this book when it was first published, is how the hell do you have an image of time? Right. Like, what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. And so... What Deleuze is talking about with images of time are three words he used, which is structures, presentations, and situations of time. So that is to say, time is communicated through the way the images are being organized, uh, both like formally, but also narratively, and uh, how they're being experienced, and how the characters are experiencing their own time and the times in which they live. So when he talks about a direct time image, it is that the there's sort of a free-floating of the image. It's not following a chain of causality the way movement images did. Um, and so that's what he means by direct time image. And you can say, well, that's not really an image of time. Time's a material, etc. But that's, that's what he's getting at, is that we come to feel time. He mentions Tarkovsky in the English preface, the pressure of time. Um, and then, of course, he he busts out an old favorite that if the cinema d- does not die a violent death, it holds out the possibility of infinite renewal. So, again, foregrounding just, like, what the time image is doing, it's constant novelty, constant generation. Uh, description is a word he's going to use a lot later on. So, 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 to so be, that's really where we start off.
0: To be really simple about it because Mm -hmm. i and i'm not saying this to try to pander to an audience that might not understand uh because like i'm sure everyone listening knows more than me because i just i'm so confused how i understood it at least this distinction between movement image and time image was in in the movement image you like actually followed characters moving through the world and it was almost like uh, it was almost uh realism like Avant la lettre, like it was just realism before realism, in that we just saw stuff going down. Like classic films that you would know the name of, like that the uh, of the wall coming down. You know, uh, if you happen to know that old black and white film of like the wall coming down, or, or the the uh, Lumiere brothers on the moon, oh, sure, or whatever, sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: something like that. Uh, movement <laughs> meliez on from... the moon. The Lumiere brothers shot people leaving the factory.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> but. How I understand the time image was suddenly that directors were not so much interested in depicting something happening in a moment, but it was like, with a cut, we can suddenly jump a number of years. Is that... I could be wrong. You can tell me that I'm wrong. That's a type of time image. That's a type of time image.
1: All right. But we'll All talk right. about time images that are ostensibly in the present, but they're right. still time images. The simplest way to describe it, and we should just jump right into the first chapter. Yeah, I'm gonna... <laughs> Uh, to do this is the the role of the seer taking over the role of the actor. Yes, and the yes. role of someone who bears witness to what's in front of them, but does not necessarily respond to it or even take part in it. Um, and this is the collapse of what he calls the sensory motor schema. So the sensory motor schema, it was kind of like um, the classical symbolic organizing structure. It's like things happen according to their ends, almost. So like a character wants something, they perform an action to get it, they are challenged or they're not challenged or they have to do something. Whereas in the time image, we are with characters who don't have these goals. They don't know what their goals are. We don't know what they want, but more importantly, they don't know what they want. So they're just witnesses to the world. And this happens both in fiction and in documentary, as we'll talk about. And different ways what it means to see as opposed to act are. Um... So the terms he uses here are op signs and son signs. Yeah, this is something. It definitely <laughs> confused me. So So the op sign is when a space loses its qualities in a way. So like in the first, if you go back to the first cinema stuff, we were talking about all these signs, we were using all these Persian terms to describe these different types of signs, and the op sign is when all that charge drifts out of it, and what you have is just the image, just something to witness. Yeah. It loses its sort of quality. And then a son sign is when the same thing happens to the soundtrack. Oh, okay, so that it yeah, is yeah. no longer a corresponding sound, but a sound sort of for itself and just there. mm um yeah okay so yes you have op signs and son signs and these are going to define the time image is images and sounds drained of their sensory motor function which means images and sounds without context almost um without reason without being put to an end um And so the forms that sort of take over this kind of cinema are really like a ballad form without a journey. So wanderings, as opposed to adventures. Yeah. Um, And then he takes us on the first sort of flashback he does. This is really a theme throughout this book, is he'll talk about something more contemporary and then he'll jump back and sort of try and find like a historical precedent. So he's almost writing in a way where he's trying to demonstrate his sort of thesis. Right. Um, and again, it's in three parts, like in cinema one, but they're not the same three parts. It's not percept affect action. It's different. And I'm not quite sure what the three parts are exactly. Uh, I don't think I wrote but, them down either. But maybe we can figure it out through the course of this, or I'll just have a eureka you, moment or something. You'll figure it out. <laughs> I will be no help. Um, but in Chapter 2, he talks about Ozu's films, and uh, Ozu was a Japanese filmmaker who was incredibly prolific. Um, he started in the silent era in the 1920s and made films until 1960. Uh, he's famous for his very still-life aesthetics. Um Always called the most Japanese of filmmakers, which is ridiculous because if you watch his movies, he's so clearly influenced by American popular culture. Sure. That the idea that he's too is he, Japanese, is he like a
0: post World War II, you know, uh, I guess uh, uh, American presence influence. No, the... he
1: was he was always interested in okay. American culture and an American film culture and the way that penetrated into Japan. Right. I think the interesting anecdote about Ozu is during the war in the films he made he replaced what were american images of popular culture with images of japanese tradition so instead of uh american film posters or coca-cola bottles you had uh cones and like buddhist symbols right but it was really just, like, to the same purpose. Mm-hmm. But he was always very aware of the influence of American film on his work. Um, and his work is very, sort of, I don't want to call it minimal, i call it more exact. He's, he chooses his shots very deliberately. And he does so to the end of... Uh, I can't even really describe it. His films, they seem boring while you watch them, and then by the time you get to the end, you feel like you've experienced everything. Is... I'm <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to ask for myself. Is there an Ozu film
0: you would... Like, one that stands out above all the others? Because I'm curious. Uh, I would like to watch it. Yeah,
1: the, the magic of Ozu is that you can... All his films have roughly the same effect. Okay. But... You can. I would recommend a film like Late Spring, uh, starring his most famous actress uh, Setsuko Hara, Uh, or Tok. Oh, look at this. (laughs) Tokyo Story is the most famous Ozu film. But he, and they're more on the sort of tragic end of his works. He also made some delightful comedies. Um, If you can stand to watch a silent film, I Was Born, but. Which is the title of the film, uh, is uh, maybe the best title in cinema and also just an incredibly funny comedy. Um, and the comparison DeLiz makes is to like the Cezanne still lifes. Uh, mm-hmm. In Ozu, and I feel like I've been stalling till I remember this word, Ozu had these famous things called pillow shots where after a scene, he would insert an image of clouds of items that had been left behind in a room just as transition images but they would effectively almost serve as a commentary on what you just saw or what was about to happen so but they weren't like continuous and they weren't really establishing shots either right in that they were detached completely yeah. from what would what would come. So yeah, they they're just these kind of any spaces whatever yes. that gather meaning from their place in time. Mm-hmm. And so Ozu in a way precedes the kind of looking and seeing and spatialization that's going to define the time image. And so he's he's so important as a predecessor to this for Deleuze. Okay, you might not know the answer
0: to this, but like Deleuze was pretty prolific with his knowledge of cinema which yes. which is st- uh, to me a little bit strange for like an academic cuz he was he was citing like you know somewhat popular people like Kubrick you know mm-hmm. who, people who I I I was just reading this and wondering like why was Deleuze spending time watching all these films uh let alone like thinking about them in a serious way <laughs> um
1: I don't know a lot of Deleuze's biography, uh, to be honest, so I'm maybe not the person to answer this question. The impression that I get is that Deleuze was sort of with people who were very interested in cinema, and it was always sort of around him. And he really became interested in cinema because in France in particular... Film was an emerging body of knowledge that had developed very quickly. Um, Like, yes, there was a lot of writing in France on cinema starting as soon as cinema began. But, like, once it got codified and once you had the competing film journals in the 1950s and then you had cinema studies institutes starting in the 60s and you had someone like christian metz who was friends with roland Barthes yeah. and part of the whole project of semiology and it's like we need a semiology of film to go with our semiology of literature and our semiology right. of culture and like but film... as we'll go
0: on Deleuze was didn't didn't want to just transpose this uh... oh no
1: Deleuze Deleuze hates this so right. i think part of it too is he was part of this culture he was french he watched movies all the time he was famously very like kind of a provincial parisian as in he spent all his time in paris and he under he experienced the world through mm. who came to paris and right. spoke with him like he didn't go places <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um sort of like how we have like provincial new yorkers today right mm-hmm. who like they can only see the world through new york like yeah, yeah or i don't know maybe there's like provincial montrealers or torontonians and stuff like that yeah um but yeah so he i think he saw it as an emerging body of knowledge that sprung up very quickly that he could relate to many of his philosophical interests right not just Bergson, but like nietzsche and there's hints of spinoza in here and there's Blanchot, and there's a little bit and there's all these things that he can connect the cinema to and another reason is i think he can use the cinema as a veil to start criticizing all his peers and really differentiate himself and his thinking without having to say um F this person, fuck that person, like, they're full of shit. Like, he can just say it in this cinema book and he's talking about movies, wink. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) So, I think cinema does a lot for him in terms of what it's going to allow him to think through. And it also allows him to recapitulate his own thoughts up to this point.
0: Yeah.
1: In a almost practical way like the cinema gives him a material object for his thinking sure so i think it's all of those things yeah Um, i mean that makes sense but, but i'm sure there's other other reasons too he probably just enjoyed movies um yeah, who doesn't? Sorry to derail you with that question. <laughs> no, no, it's totally okay, because we pretty much finished up the Ozu stuff. I remember there's a part in that section where he brings up Leibniz in relation to Ozu, and I was just like, oh, this motherfucker. <laughs> who would fucking explain <laughs> Ozu films using Leibniz? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> who, I, who is this guy? I, uh, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, the third part of this first chapter... Um we finally get a definition of what a cliche is, picking up from last time. He explains what cliches are, and it's it's back to the sensory motor idea of like using something for its expected purpose. Um and I like hesitate to bring this up because everybody hates him, but like this is kinda like Heidegger's tool, right? With the with the hammer? Yeah. So like when we use the hammer the way it's meant to be used we're not thinking about the hammer and its existence we're just putting it to work but when the hammer breaks right you know now there's all this what does this mean it's a crisis it provokes something we begin to think about it in a way we didn't before so like that's what cliches are they're functioning hammers yes
0: they make making movies pretty easy, yeah. For yes. for, the, for the big business, you know. Yeah,
1: you you put your cliches together, and people have the experience they expect to have, and it works out for them. So, what he wants is things that break down these cliches that like become the pure optical and sound situations, Wh- which you know.
0: is different from the sensory motor ones. It's the, yeah. the
1: transition from the yeah. movement
0: to the time It's the transition from sensory motor to optical sound.
1: Pure, pure optical. Pure optical. Pure yeah. And sound. so Yeah, that's that's where it departs. Um, is this that's where there's this break. And this break happens for Deleuze because of the Second World War. Even though he's just told us it preceded it. <laughs> I didn't catch on that, so... Yeah, because Ozu Ozu made a bunch of films exactly the same way he'd make them after the war, before the war. Um, So, like, this is... His chronology is selective. Um, But the thing that he relates it to is, like, he's thinking of Rossellini's films, like, Europa 51 is the example he goes back to of this woman seeing workers enter a factory and she says it's a prison. I saw prisoners going to the river right. and it's like, yeah, of course there's an abolitionist message in my favorite book. It's yeah. the anti-carceral thought. Of course, it's what mm-hmm. we all want. Um, but more seriously, it's in the post-war Europe, you had people who were now completely displaced by the war. You had reconstruction and sort of people just not knowing what their place was and seeing themselves and becoming aware of seeing themselves. And so that's what leads to thought is these characters who sort of observe their situations and think about their situations but don't know how to act in them and who might produce a description of their situation or who might be able to report on their situation but they can't they don't know what to do what so when you don't know what to do that's when you start becoming open to possibilities outside of what came before and
0: hence this new, the newness in the in cinema yeah. at that point.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so what we get with these types of films if they're going to give us a direct presentation of time is that it's a literal image of thought. And I don't want to completely retrace difference and repetition here. <laughs> in difference in repetition, Deleuze uses the phrase image of thought to refer to the sort of dogmatic image of philosophy and he's very critical of the idea of an image of thought. But it seems here that the image of thought is no longer dogmatic, it's a productive image of thought. And so he's he's interested in it and he wants to go towards it. Um, and I think that's all I have for chapter one, unless you want to talk I... about specific films because then we can be here for hours. My god, no. I uh,
0: <laughs> I really want to emphasize I, I'm I out of totally out of the loop with this so if you think that that you know captures the essence of
1: chapter one i i am in total agreement i think that that gets at a lot of what's going on in chapter one and the examples are um mostly productive of that so his bringing up like antonioni Godard uh revet you know these these all fit so yeah antonioni gadar revet all these examples that he uses are just to bring out the central idea of wandering and looking and one thing i want to pick up on is where we sort of ended cinema one where he came up with this sort of conspiracy of cliches And this is how we're going to essentially get out of it, is we're going to go... We're not going to follow sort of the direction of the sensory motor image anymore. We're going to break away from it. And this is where resistance is going to emerge in a kind of stopping or withdrawal or... um, Spoiler for later on, but like interstice. Right. A break, an eruption. And... So the first chapter really kind of lays all this out there. The second chapter is going to sort of be, like, more of a proper introduction. (laughs) (laughs) The second chapter is him being like, okay, now let's explain. Yeah. Previously on. Yeah and so he draws the distinction between semiotics and semiology which is semiology is concerned with linguistics and utterances and semiotics is concerned with images and pre-linguistic material and he really tears into Christian Metz in the beginning of this chapter he's yes. like his logic is completely circular like it's it looks for utterances because it says narratives are utterances and so it finds what it's looking for And it doesn't deal with the material that makes up those narratives. So Mm -hmm. what I'm proposing is a semiotics, which actually deals with what the images mean, not what, not how they're structured or conveyed. Yeah. And uh, I can't help but also see this as like a dig on BART via METS. Well, yeah, as you just said, they were friends. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and close colleagues. So I think... You know, it's not about it's not about a reference to movement. It's a movement image. The image is literally in motion. It's not a reference to time. It's literally an image of time. So that's kind of how he's going to define it. And then in the second part, uh, I just wrote down this is a review of Cinema One. We did three hours about this. Go listen. Oh, yeah, go check like... that out if you want. <laughs> I would hope
0: I would hope you would have already listened to that or at least read it before listening to this because it'd be really strange mm. for you to start. Deleuze's foray into cinema with cinema
1: too or wow. you're me and you did that because it talks about the movies you like is that true <laughs> you started with cinema two. yeah because it talked about all the movies i like oh my god uh
0: i was confused enough
1: um so yeah and then the thing that's underlined is again the breaking of the sensory motor link points to a beyond of the movement image right So then we get direct time images, and what are those? They're based around aberrant movement, that's going to be a term he uses a lot, Uh, false continuity. And when he's talking about this, he's talking about both formally, so in terms of the editing of a film, uh, they no longer obey the 180 degree rule, images don't follow chronologically from each other, etc., but he also means a subject matter so he's interested in movies that deal with temporal disjunction uh memory um like Rene is his big filmmaker and the more we talk about some of the ideas he has and the more we talk about renee we'll see that in the subject matter of his films Hiroshima Mon Amour is about a woman remembering her experience in Nazi-occupied France while her lover tries to convey to her, her his experience of Hiroshima. Last Year at Marion Bad is a movie about someone insisting they'd met at someone else the previous year, but then she doesn't remember, so he keeps telling her these stories about how they could have met or what could have happened, and it's never just explained what happened. It's always in flux, it's always in confrontation. And so many more of Renee's films are like this. Um, even a film Deleuze doesn't talk about like his smoking no smoking double feature is all these different um like if these two characters meet here then this could happen or if they met here then this would happen and all the characters are played by the same two actors so there's constantly different people actualizing different parts so it's all about roles and occupying roles and what could have happened with time so it's not just about film technique though it is, he's also, like, movies that are about time. Yeah. (laughs) And where time is part of the, the subject matter of the story. And so, like, that's why he brings up Proust as, like, a perfect example of the time image because Proust's work is, it's about memory, but it's also about um how memory interacts with the present and how you begin to write about the things you remember and etc. So yeah, the image is no longer in the present. It's not a present tense image. It's haunted by the past and future. And I have a contemporary example. I'm not going to just use DeLuz's examples um though I could uh this the best illustration I can think of of this it, that's in a recent movie is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which I haven't seen but oh I... my goodness okay well some people don't like it but some people are wrong um it <laughs> reminds
0: me like uh there are two kinds of people in this world there are people who like abba and
1: there are liars <laughs> but yes I like Waterloo I'll admit it um but yeah so in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there's this scene where Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate goes to watch the movie The Wrecking Crew which starred the real life Sharon Tate so as Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate watches the movie with the quote unquote real Sharon Tate playing a character in the film you see that, like, what What are we seeing here? Are we seeing... We're seeing... The movie takes place in the past, but here's an actual object from the past. Are they playing the actual movie? So not, yes, not it's, Margot Robbie.
0: It's not Margot Robbie. Watching Margot... So you have Margot
1: Robbie playing Sharon Tate, watching right. the real Sharon Tate. In this movie. Okay. So... What is happening in this... And this whole scene supposedly takes place in the past, but as we'll learn by the end of the movie, it's a past that never existed. Right. It's a fictionalization well, or a fantasy of the I past. I say right, but I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So what what is going on here? Like, it's a question of time and actual and virtual and all these different things, like this image doesn't mean anything if it's just a present tense image. It means something because we know that that's Sharon Tate and we know that she is but both isn't Sharon Tate at the same time. And we also know that this movie, while supposedly taking place in a real, like it's Los Angeles, 1968, like Mm -hmm. it was supposed to be a real place, but we know by the end of the movie that that's not really (laughs) what this was. So I think that's an example of like, a direct time image in a contemporary film um and i'm sure i could think about other examples but that was just like that's the most aggressively obvious one because i'm you're sure playing... people have, have seen it and we'll yeah. relate i hope um <laughs> okay so i think we can move on to chapter three yeah then. let's do How are we doing on time
0: i think we have time we'll do chapter three and then we'll take
1: a we'll take okay a, well yeah so our boy is back Bergson yeah, Bergson, yeah, and this first section Bergson. this first section's about the tattoo I'm gonna get oh, t- tell us about it okay, so um basically this is about uh, sensory motor images versus descriptions, so sensory motor images follow from the what something is supposed to do, going back to our hammer example of hammer, hammers, you hit nails with it, you pull nails out, whatever. But a description happens when we just look at the object and be like, okay, what is this? Um, or it breaks, and it's like, well, what is it now? Like, why doesn't it do what it did before? Or like, what could it do? Yeah. yeah. So he pres- he's he makes reference to, and I think it actually is at the end of the book... This a diagram of Bergsons, which is one circle with um, object and actuality in it. And then going out from the actuality, there is, there is B, C and D in concentric circles. And then coming out from the bottom, below the object, there is B prime, C prime, and D prime. And so the ascending circles are sensory motor possibilities. They're the things we can do with something. And the descending circles are virtual possibilities, or things we think up about something when we describe it, but not things we actually do with it. Right. So... (laughs) so it's about looking at layers of reality in terms of what they're used for and then in terms of how they can be perceived
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and the reason i'm getting a tattoo of this is because i like identify so deeply with this diagram i look at it and i go that's life (laughs) right there that's it you have the things you experience and how you realize them and then you have the way you look at things and how you think about them right yeah i sound pretty cool (laughs) yeah so that's that's like the, the big Bergsonian dive he does to bring up this image. And it's funny that he writes about it and you have to go to the glossary to look at it to see what he's talking about.
0: <laughs> I didn't do that and I feel like I should have, but you, you drew the image pretty yeah. well. I, I feel um, like I know what's going on.
1: So then he, we kind of go back again. And this is the thing is like, we're constantly going back and then going forward, going back and then going forward. And he talks about recollection images, which are the first of our last movement images. So these are not time images; they will play a role in the time image in setting the ground for it, but they're not time images. And if if I could add, he he really stresses
0: that point because he doesn't want to. He really wants to dissuade us from thinking that some kind of um, representation of the past. Be it like a flashback or anything has anything to do per se with the time image because that would be way it's like way too vulgar, like way too reductive to think of it in mm-hmm. those terms.
1: And it's to just put it in practical terms again, like we use memory all the time. like we find something and it's like, what do I do with this? Oh I remember now and we do the thing. Yeah. But we're not really we're not taking a moment to describe what we're doing with the thing. We're just relying on our memory to tell us how to use it. Yeah. And so that's kind of what recollection images are and what kind of, like, flashbacks, in this sense, are. They give us information that allows actions to take place. Um, And so, like, I wrote that they bring the past to the present for use. That's what recollection images do. And so this is is an actual, not a virtual image. It's real, not imaginary. Mm -hmm. And this is still sensory motor. And so in the third part, he gets into something which is a little diceier, which are dream images, because these, these are more pure recollections, but they're still tied to someone sleeping. They're tied to an individual, and each image kind of has this surrealist logic where it's the next, an image that follows from a previous one has its possibility in it. So, there is the actual layer of the image of what it is, and then its virtual possibility, which will be realized in the next. Yeah. And this is sort of like um, the principle of condensation in Freudian psychoanalysis, in Freudian dream analysis. Um, and the quote I have
0: for it was that it doesn't necessarily relate to recollection images, but it instead relates to. Now these are his words a fluid, malleable sheets of past which are happy. That's just one, the one quote that I took out of this, <laughs> this section there. Uh, if that speaks to you at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm... Just yes-anding, because it's what I do. Uh, yeah, it... Dream images... I don't know if they're exclusively happy, but... Um, Maybe that's more when we get into the musical. Uh, But there is definitely a sense that they have a use.
0: Sure, yeah.
1: And this is what kind of the musical comedy does, is there's this move from uh, reality to spectacle. Okay. So that... The actual kind of dissolves into the virtual of the dance, and we can think of uh, *An American in Paris* is really famous for its final sequence, which is this huge dream fantasy ballet. And it was completely ripped off in the movie *La La Land*. If you saw that, the yeah, last the it. last part of *La La Land* is
0: when there she
1: she walks into the jazz bar yeah. and sees him playing and right? they, there's that whole fantasy yeah, musical yeah, 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 number yeah, yeah. basically completely stolen from an American in Paris Really okay <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah it's that same idea of and in La La Land I think it's just the same effect really it's this this sort of actual situation becomes this virtual possibility I think you might have mentioned that in the other episodes we did yeah. Uh, for I, some reason it sounds familiar, but... Because Minelli gets brought up in the previous volume <laughs> yeah, too, so I'm sure I I'm sure you... I hit that point. Um and then when he's talking about Manelli, he brings up this idea that he'll expand on in or he'll expand on a little bit in an essay he writes afterwards. But he talks about people being victims of dreams. And how we're we're all victims of somebody's dreams. Deleuze or Manelli? Deleuze. Deleuze, yeah. Yeah. He he has this sort of fear of dreams, of people's dreams and what they do when people get caught up in them. Oh, really? Hmm. And, uh, oh, and then, okay, the last thing he talks about are world images. Yeah. And he refers to Jerry Lewis, and he refers to Jacques Tati's films. I really wanted to rewatch Playtime before we did this, which, um, it's a Monsieur Hulot film. Hulot? Sorry, I H's Uh, uh, and it's just about sort of contemporary well 1967 contemporary sort of mechanized Paris and the way everything's sort of automated and it's sort of a slapstick comedy sort of thing but it's the most like art housey slapstick comedy you'd ever see in your life like it's very funny but it's also incredibly precise and abstract and yeah it's it's an absolutely incredible film and it presents this sort of image of the world where um action has been taken away from characters and it's the world itself that acts and they're carried along with it Mm -hmm. so here we have again the beginnings of characters who see rather than characters who act who are no longer the ones in control the world itself has been recognized and they're a part of it
0: right because just to go back, and this to go back to the first chapter, yeah. when he's talking about this this shift into um, characters becoming seers, he extends that not only to the characters themselves, but to objects in the world around them. Like they they almost all attain some degree of autonomy that was uh, that they didn't possess prior to this shift mm-hmm. into you know into the pure optical uh, sound or to- into the time you know, paradigm image, you know, yeah. framework. Uh, and I don't know if you can say any more about that. It's just yeah. My, like one I observation think, I could throw in. Well,
1: I think, I think what appeals to me about this book, um, not to turn this into a memoir about myself, but is in cinema two, especially, but it was at work at cinema one. There is both a disenchantment and an enchantment taking place. Because sensory motor connections fall apart. The world, we lose our relationship to the world, and we find out that it was sort of constructed or arbitrary, um, and, it, and organic was, like, the, we thought it was organic. It seemed natural, but right. it wasn't. But then, at the same time, there's this enchantment of the world becomes something for us in that breaking down, that we can use and that we can engage with in an entirely different way than we did before so it's not a full-on like uh to use the eve sedgwick term like paranoid theory sure it's it's both sort of it breaks something down but it in that breaking down something new takes its place yeah and this is kind of always the line I try to walk is I never want to tear something down and not have something to offer in its place. I've always been very one of those people who it's like, I always hated it in classes when people in their presentations would deconstruct the text and then just be like, I have proven that this text has all these biases and that it is problematic and right. that would be their presentation. I'd always be like, well, p- put something in its place. Like you can't just... yeah." break this book for us and be like see it's broken we're done mm-hmm. like i've always been like no it's okay so what does it mean that you did that yeah like like show me what the value of having done that was um and that's that's what i see happening in this book is this like yes the movement image breaks down but what emerges is this time image that gives us so many possibilities but it's a struggle like it's not going to be easy And it's going to challenge us and mean that we can't do things the way we used to do them, but it lets us find new ways of doing things. Yeah. So that's, that's, I guess, something about this book that's just like, I just respond to it. And I'm like, okay, let's go on this journey together. Let's do this. Let's break things down, but find the new thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's... (laughs) That's probably a good point to wrap this this first section up, unless you have something else to say about it.
1: Oh, no, I just got really
0: uh, sentimentals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, we'll keep
0: that going. But for now, that rounds off Chapter 3, and the next time we'll start on Chapter 4. So, for those that listen this far, thank you and keep going. Because I, I can say, at least in terms of the book, it gets a lot more interesting as we go on uh, from this point. Not to say that it wasn't interesting, but I just... It drew me in more oh no it gets on.
1: so much better
0: <laughs> yeah we're gonna get into crystals which are i don't know i i couldn't you know penetrate as far as
1: my my, uh, my note says crystals with an exclamation point i was very excited <laughs> i just have a ton of questions and like on it's damn. yeah i'm i'm happy to go into it
0: uh but yeah all right so we'll catch you next week um take care everyone